Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Mark Twain's Letters from Hawaii. All books that Uvula Audio presents are in the public domain. Volume 7. Letter 16. Honolulu, June 30th, 1866. A month of mourning. For a little more than a month, the late princess, Her Royal Highness, Victoria Kamamalu Kaahumanu, heir presumptive to the crown and sister to the king, lay in state at the Aolani Palace, the royal residence. For a little over a month, troops of natives of both sexes, drawn here from several islands by the great event, have thronged past my door every evening on their way to the palace. Every night and all night long, for more than thirty days, multitudes of these strange mourners have burned their candle-nut torches in the royal enclosure and sung their funeral dirges, and danced their hula-hulas, and wailed their harrowing wail for the dead. All this time we strangers have been consumed with curiosity to look within those walls and see the pagan deviltry that was going on there. But the thing was taboo, which means forbidden. We get our word taboo from the Hawaiian language. Taboo to foreigners. Howlies. The grounds were thrown open to everybody the first night, but several rowdy white people acted so unbecomingly, so shamefully, in fact, that the king placed a strict taboo upon their future admittance. I was absent on the island of Maui at the time, and so lost that one single opportunity to gratify my curiosity in this matter. Last night was to behold the grand finale, inasmuch as the obsequies were to transpire today, and therefore I was a good deal gratified to learn that a few foreigners would be allowed to enter the side gate and view the performances in the palace yard from the veranda of Dr. Hutchinson's house, the Minister of the Interior. I got there a little after 8 p.m. Night Scene in the Palace Grounds The veranda we occupied overlooked the royal grounds and afforded an excellent view of the 2,000 or 2,500 natives sitting densely packed together in the glare of the torches between our position and the palace, a hundred feet in front of us. It was a wild scene, those long rows of eager dusky faces with the light upon them, the band of hula girls in the center, showily attired in white bodices and pink skirts, with wreaths of pink and white flowers and garlands of green leaves about their heads, and the strongly illuminated torch bearers scattered far and near at intervals through the large assemblage and standing up conspicuously above the masses of sitting forms. Light enough found its way to the broad verandas of the palace to enable us to see whatever transpired upon them with considerable distinctness. We could see nothing there, however, except two or three native sentries in red uniforms with gleaming muskets in their hands. Presently someone said, Oh, there's the king. Where? There in the veranda. Now he's just passing that. Ah, oh, no, it's just that blasted Harris. That isn't really his Christian name, but he's usually called that, or a stronger one. I state this by way of explanation. Harris is the Minister of Finance and Attorney General, and I don't know how many other things. He has three marked points. He is not a second Solomon. He is as vain as a peacock. And he is as cheeky as... Well, however, there is no simile for his cheek. In the legislature the other day, the speaker was trying to seat a refractory member. 
The member knew he was strictly in order, though, and that his only crime was his opposition to the ministry, and so he refused to sit down. And Harris whispered to the interpreter, Tell the speaker to let me have the chair a moment. The speaker vacated his place. Harris stepped into it and rapped fiercely with the gavel, scowled imperiously upon the intrepid commoner and ordered him to sit down. The man declined to do it. Harris commanded the sergeant-at-arms to seat him. After a trial, that officer said the bold representative of the people refused to permit him to seat him. Harris ordered the sergeant to take the man out of the house and remove him by force. Sensation tempest, I should say. The poor humbled and browbeaten country members threw off their fears for the moment and became men, and from every part of the house they shouted, Come out of that chair! Leave that place! Put him out! Put out the so-and-so. I have forgotten the Hawaiian phrase, but it is equivalent to miserable dog. And this terrible man, who was going to perform such wonders, vacated the speaker's chair and went meekly back to his own place, leaving the stout opponent of the ministry master of the field. The legislature adjourned at once, and the excited and triumphant Kanakas burst forth into a stirring battle hymn of the old days of Kamehameha the Great, Harris was an American once, born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, but he is no longer one. He is Hu'upili Mea'i to the king. How do you like that, Mr. H? How do you like being attacked in your own native tongue? Note to the reader, that long native word means, well, it means Uriah heap boiled down. It means the soul and spirit of obsequiousness. No genuine American can be other than obedient and respectful toward the government he lives under, and the flag that protects him, but no such American can ever be Hupilimani to anybody. I hope the general readers will pardon this digression, but if the general reader don't want to do it, he can let it alone. A Glimpse of the Heathen Ages About half past eight o'clock, a dozen native women rose up and began the sad morning rites. They locked arms and swayed violently backward and forward faced around and went through a number of quick gestures with their hands and their heads and their bodies, and turned and twisted and mingled together, heads and hands going all the time, and their motions timed to a weird howling, which it would be rather complimentary to call singing, and finished up spreading their arms abroad and throwing their heads and bodies far backward simultaneously, and all uttering a deafening squall at the same time. Well... If there's anything between the fall rones and fiddler's green as devilish as that, I wish I may. Brown, I said, the solemn and impressive funeral rites of the ancient times have been rescued from the oblivion to which the ignorant missionaries consigned them forty years ago by the good and wise Lord Bishop Staley. It ill beseems such as you to speak irreverently of them. I cannot permit you to say more in this vein in my presence. When the women had finished, the multitude clapped their hands boisterously in token of applause. A number of native boys next stood up and went through a performance a good deal like that which I have just described, singing at the same time a strange, unmusical chant. The audience applauded again. Harris came out once more on that part of the veranda, which could be seen best by the great assemblage, and assumed an attitude and expression so suggestive of his being burdened with the cares of state of sixty or seventy kingdoms, that if I had been a stranger, I would have said to myself, the trifles that Richelieu had to contend with were foolishness to what this man has got on his hands. 
Christianity and Civilization in the Warm Quarters. Next, about 20 native women dressed in black rose up and sang some hymns like ours, but in the Kanaka tongue, and made good music of them. Some of the voices were very rich and sweet, and the harmony was excellent and timed perfectly. Every now and then, while this choir sang, and in fact all evening, old-time natives scattered through the crowd would suddenly break out into a wild, heartbroken wail that would almost startle one's pulse into stillness. And there was one old fellow near the center who would get up often, no matter what was going on, and branch forth into a sort of sing-song recitation, which he would eventually change into a stump speech. He seemed to make a good many hits, judging by the cordial applause he got from a coterie of admirers in his immediate vicinity. More Heathen Deviltry A dozen men performed next, howled and distorted their bodies, and flung their arms fiercely about like very maniacs. God bless my soul, just listen to that racket. Your opinion is your opinion, and I don't quarrel with it. And my opinion is my own, and I say once and for all that if I was mayor of this town, I would just get up here and read the riot act once, if I died for it the next. And, Brown, I cannot allow this language. These touching expressions of mourning were instituted by the good bishop, who has come from his English home to teach this poor benighted race to follow the example and imitate the sinless ways of the Redeemer. And did he not mourn for the dead Lazarus? Did not the sacred scriptures say Jesus wept? I overheard this person, Brown, muttering something about the imitation being rather overdone or improved upon or something of the kind, but I paid no attention to it. The man means well. His ignorance is his misfortune, not his crime. Twenty Kanakas in striped-knit shirts now filed through the dense crowd and sat down in a double row on the ground. Each bore an immense gourd more than two feet long, with a neck near one end and a head to it. The outer or largest was at least a foot in diameter. These things were dry and hollow and are the native tom-toms or drums. Each man set his gourd on end and supported it with a hand on each side. At a given signal, every drummer launched out into a dismal chant and slapped his drum twice in quick succession with open hands, then three times, then twice again. Then, well, I cannot describe it. They slapped the drums in every conceivable way and the sound produced was as dull and dry as if the drums had been solid stone. Then they held them above their heads for a few moments, or over their shoulders, or in front of their faces, or behind their necks, and then brought them simultaneously to the ground in a dead hollow thump. And then they were on slapping them as before. They kept up this most dreary and unexciting performance for twenty minutes or more and the great concourse of natives watched every motion with rapt and eager admiration and loudly applauded the musicians. Brown muttered under the vile pretense of not intending to be heard. Jesus wept. Brown, I said, your conduct is shameful. It has always been conceded that in following the example set us by the Savior, we may be allowed some latitude, but I will not argue with a man who is so bigoted, fault-finding, and uncharitable. I will have nothing further to say to you upon this subject. He, he wept. I thought I heard those words, but Brown's head was out of the window, and I was not certain. I was already irritated to that degree that to speak would be to lose my temper, and therefore I allowed the suspected mutinous language to pass unnoticed. The Celebrated National Dance, the Hula Hula.
After the drumming came the famous hula hula we had heard so much about and so long to see, the lascivious dance that was wont to set the passions of men ablaze in the old heathen days a century ago. About thirty buxom young Kanaka women, gaily attired, as I had before remarked, in pink and white, and with their heads wreathed in flowers and evergreens, formed themselves into half a dozen rows of five or six in a row, shook their reefs out of their skirts, tightened their girdles, and began the most unearthly caterwauling that was ever heard, perhaps. The noise had a marked and regular time to it, however, and they kept strict time to it with writhing bodies, with heads and hands thrust out to the left, then to the right, then a step to the front, and left hands all projected simultaneously forward, and right hands placed on the hips, then the same repeated with a change of hands. Then a mingling together of the performers, quicker time, faster, and more violently excited motions, more and more complicated gestures, the words of their fierce chant, meantime, treating in the broadest terms, and in detail of things which may be vaguely hinted at in a respectable newspaper, but not distinctly mentioned. Then a convulsive writhing of the person, continued for a few moments, and ending in a sudden stop and a grand caterwaul of chorus and great applause. Jesus wept. I barely heard his words, and that was all. They sounded like blasphemy. I offered no rebuke to the utterer, because I could not disguise from myself that the gentle grief of the Savior was but poorly imitated here, and that the heathen orgies resurrected by the Lord Bishop of Honolulu were not warranted by the teachings of the Master whom he professes to serve. Mr. Harris, emerging from the palace veranda at this moment, with the weight of his sixty kingdoms bearing down on him heavier than ever, and it being past midnight I judged it time to go home. And so I did. Whose circus was it? It's reported that the king has said, quote, Foreigners like their religion. Let them enjoy it and freely. But the religion of my fathers is good enough for me, unquote. Now that is all right. At least I think so. And I have no fault to find with the natives for the lingering love they feel for their ancient customs. But I do find fault with Bishop Staley for reviving these customs of a barbarous age at a time when they had been abandoned and were being forgotten, when one more generation of faithful adherence to the teachings of the American missionaries would have buried them forever and made them memories of the past, things to be talked of and wondered at, like the old laws that made it death for a plebeian to stand erect in the presence of his king or for a man to speak to his wife on a taboo day. For forty years before, the bishop brought his royal Hawaiian established Reformed Catholic Church here, the kings and chiefs of this land had been buried with the quiet, simple Christian rites that are observed in England and America, and no man thought of anything more being necessary. But one of the first things that Bishop Staley did when he arrived here a few years ago was to write home that the missionaries had deprived the natives of their innocent sports and pastimes, such as the lascivious hula hula and the promiscuous bathing in the surf of nude natives of opposite sexes, and one of the next things he did was to attend a hula hula at Waikiki with his holy head tricked out in the flower and evergreen trumpery worn by the hula girls. When the late king died, the bishop revived the half-forgotten howling and hula dancing and other barbarisms in the palace yard and officiated there as a sort of master of ceremonies. For many a year before he came, that wretchedest of all wretched musical abortions, the tom-tom, had not been heard near the heart of Honolulu. 
but he reinstated it and brought it into its ancient esteem and popularity. The old superstitions of this people were passing away faster than is the case with the inhabitants of the unfrequented and sparsely populated country districts of America, France, and Wales, but Bishop Staley is putting a stop to the progress in this direction. We owe the strange and unpleasant scenes of last night to him. There are not ten white men in the kingdom who have ever seen their like before in public, and I am told that he is appalled at the work of his own hands, that he is ashamed that he dreads to think of the comments that will provoke in Christian lands. In a word, he finds too late that he has made a most melancholy blunder. Bishop Staley If I may speak freely, I think this all comes of elevating a weak, trivial-minded man to a position of rank and power, of making a bishop out of a very inferior material of trying to construct greatness out of constitutional insignificance. My estimate of Bishop Staley is not carelessly formed. There is evidence to back it up. He gossips habitually. He lacks the common wisdom to keep still that deadly enemy of man, his own tongue. He says ill-advised things in public speeches, and then in other public speeches denied he ever said them. He shows spite, a trait which is not allied to greatness. He is fond of rushing into print, like mediocrity the world over, and is vainer of being my lord bishop over a diocese of 15,000 men and women, albeit they belong to other people's churches, than some other men would be of wielding the worldwide power of the Pope. And finally, every single important act of his administration has evinced a lack of sagacity and an unripeness of judgment which might be forgiven a youth, but not a full-grown man or, if that seems too severe, which might be forgiven a restless, visionary nobody, but not a bishop. My estimate of Bishop Staley may be a wrong one, but it is at least an honest one. Persons who are intimate with Bishop Staley say he is a good man, and well-educated, and cultivated, and that in social life he is companionable, pleasant, and liberal-spirited, when church matters are not the topic of conversation. This is no doubt true, but it is my province to speak of him in his official, not his private capacity. He has shown the temerity of an incautious, inexperienced, and immature judgment in rushing in here fresh from the heart and home of a high English civilization and throwing down the gauntlet of defiance before a band of stern, tenacious, unyielding, tireless, industrious, devolted old Puritan knights who have seen forty years of missionary service whose time was never fooled away in theorizing, but whose lightest acts always meant business, who landed here two score years ago full of that fervent zeal, resistless determination inherited from their pilgrim forebears, and marched forth and seized upon this people with a grip of iron and infused into their being, wrought into their very natures, the spirit of democracy and the religious enthusiasm that animated themselves whose grip is still upon the race and can never be loosened till they of their own free will and accord shall relax it. He showed a marvelous temerity, one weak, inexperienced man against a host of drilled and hardy veterans, and among them great men, men who would be great in wider and broader spheres than they have chosen here. He miscalculated the force, the confidence, the determination of that Puritan spirit which subdued America and underlies her whole religious fabric today, which has subdued these islanders and whose influence over them 
can never be unseated. The Reformed Catholic Church, the court religion. His church was another miscalculation. It was a mistake to appeal by imposing ceremonies and showing display to a people imbued with a thorough Puritan distaste for such things and who had never been much accustomed to anything of the kind at any period in their history. There is little in common between the simple evergreen decorations of the tom-toms and hulas of the natives and the cheap magnificence of the bishop's cathedral altar, his gaudily painted organ pipes, and the monotonous and unattractive ceremonials of his church service. He is fighting with good nerve, but his side is weak. The money strength of these islands, their agriculture, their commerce, their mercantile affairs, is in the hands of Americans, Republicans. The religious power of the country is wielded by Americans, Republicans. The whole people are saturated with the spirit of democratic Puritanism, and they are Republicans. This is a republic to the very marrow, and over it sits a king, a dozen nobles, and half a dozen ministers. The field of the Royal Hawaiian Established Church is thus so circumscribed that the little cathedral in Nuuanu Street, with its 30 pews of 10 individual capacity each, is large enough to accommodate it in its entirety and have room to spare. And this is the bugbear that has kept the American missionaries in hot water for three or four years. The Bishop of Honolulu ought to feel flattered that a chance so slim as his, and a power so feeble as his, has been able to accomplish it. But at the same time, he ought to feel grateful, because if left alone, he and his church must infallibly have been and remained insignificant. I do not say this ill-naturedly, for I bear the bishop no malice, and I respect his sacred office. I simply state a palpable fact. I will say a word or two about the Reformed Catholic Church, to the end that strangers may understand its character. Briefly, then, it is a miraculous invention. One might worship this strange production itself without breaking the first commandment, for there is nothing like it in the heavens above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. The Catholics refuse to accept it as Catholic. The Episcopalians deny that it is the church that they are accustomed to, and, of course, the Puritans claim no kindred with it at all. It's called a child of the established Church of England, but it resembles its parent in few particulars. It has got an altar, which is gay with fiery velvet, showy white trimmings, vases of flowers, and other mantle ornaments. It was once flanked by imposing seven-branch candlesticks, but these were obnoxious and have been removed. Over it is a thing like a gilt signboard, on which is rudely painted two processions, four personages in each, matching solemnly and in single file toward the crucified Savior in the center, and bringing their baggage with them. The design of it is a secret known only to the artist and his maker. Near the pulpit is a red canopied shower bath, well, I mean it looks like one, upon which is inscribed, Separated unto the gospel of God. The bishop sits under it at a small desk when he has got nothing particular to do, the pipe organs are colored with a groundwork of blue, which is covered all over with a flower work wrought in other colors. Judging by its striking homeliness, I should say that the artist of the altarpiece had labored here also. Near the door of the church, but inside, of course, stands a small pillar surmounted by a large shell. It may be for holy water, or it may be a contribution box. 
If the latter is the case, I have to protest it's a ghastly pun, the mute suggestion to shell out. It is ill-suited to the sacred character of the place, and it is only with the profoundest pain that I force myself to even think for a moment upon so distressing a circumstance. Against the wall is a picture of the future cathedral of Honolulu, a more imposing structure than the present one, that many a year may elapse before it is built is no wish of mine. A dozen acolytes, Chinese kanaka and half-white boys, arrayed in white robes, hold positions near the altar, and during the early part of the service they sing and go through some performances suggestive of the regular Catholic services. After that, the majority of the boys go off on furlough. The bishop reads a chapter from the Bible, then the organist leaves his instrument and sings a litany peculiar to this church and not to be heard elsewhere. There is nothing stirring or incendiary about his mild nasal music. The congregation joins the chorus. After this, a third clergyman preaches the sermon. These three ecclesiastics all wear white surplices. I have described the evening services. When the bishop first came here, he indulged in a good deal of showy display and ceremony in his church, but these proved so distasteful, even to Episcopalians, that he shortly modified them very much. I have spoken rather irreverently once or twice in the above paragraph, and am ashamed of it. But why write it over? I would not be likely to get it any better. I might make the matter worse, in fact. You can say that again. Brown, have you in defiance of all my reproofs been looking over my shoulder again? Yeah, but that's all right, you know. That's all right. Just say, just say that the bishop works as hard as any man and makes the best fight he can. And that's a credit to him, anyway. Brown, that is the first charitable sentiment I have ever heard you utter. At a proper moment, I will confer upon you a fitting reward for it. But for the present, good night, son. Go now. Go to your innocent slumbers and wash your feet, Brown, or perhaps your teeth. At any rate, you are unusually offensive this evening. Remedy the matter. Never mind explaining. Good night. The Roman Catholic Mission the French Roman Catholic mission here, under the right reverend Lord Bishop Maigret, goes along unostentatiously, and its affairs are conducted with a wisdom which betrays the presence of a leader of distinguished ability. The Catholic clergy are honest, straightforward, frank, and open. They are industrious and devoted to their religion and their work. They never meddle. Whatever they can do can be relied on as being prompted by a good and worthy motive. These things disarm resentment. A prejudice cannot exist in their presence. Consequently, Americans are never heard to speak ill or slightingly of the French Catholic mission. Their religion is not nondescript. It is plain, out-and-out, out, undisguised, and unmistakably Catholic. You know right where to find them when you want them. The American missionaries have no quarrel with these men. They honor and respect and esteem them and bid them Godspeed. This is an anomaly for you, Puritan and Roman Catholic striding along, hand in hand, under the banner of the cross. Mark Twain Letter 17, Honolulu, July 1, 1866 Funeral of the Princess At 10 o'clock yesterday morning, the court members of the legislature and various diplomatic bodies assembled at the Iolani Palace to be present at the funeral of the late princess. The sermon was preached by their Reverend Mr. Parker, 
pastor of the Great Stone Church, of which the princess was a member, I believe, and whose choir she used to lead in the days of her early womanhood. To the day of her death, she was a staunch, unwavering friend and ally of the missionaries, and it is a matter of no surprise that Parker, always eloquent, spoke upon this occasion with a feeling and pathos which visibly removed the hearts of men accustomed to conceal their emotions. The Bishop of Honolulu, ever zealous, had sought permission to officiate in Parker's stead, but after duly considering the fact that the princess had always regarded the bishop with an unfriendly eye and had persistently refused to have anything to do with his church, his request was denied. However, he demanded and was granted the place of honor in the procession, although it belonged properly to the officiating clergyman. The bishop also claimed that inasmuch as the royal mausoleum was consecrated ground, that it would be sacrilegious to allow a Calvinistic minister to officiate there when the body was consigned to the tomb, and so he was allowed to conduct that portion of the obsequies himself. However, he explained that it was not the custom of his church to read a burial service or offer up a prayer over such that had never belonged to his church, and therefore the departed princess was consigned to her last resting place with no warmer or kindlier recommendation than a meager non-committal benediction, a sort of chilly funeral palatinus, nothing more. But then we should not blame the bishop in this matter because he has both authority and example to sustain his position, as I find by the reference to a review by W.D. Alexander of one of his pastoral addresses. Let me quote from Alexander, quote, only last December, Thomas Powell, near Peterborough in England, wished to have his son buried in the parish churchyard and a dissenting minister to officiate. When the friends had gathered around the grave, a messenger arrived from the clergyman of the established church, one Ellaby, stating that he was ready to perform the Episcopal service. This was courteously declined, upon which the rector issued from the church and forbade the burial, even the rite of silent interment was denied them, and when the afflicted father would himself perform the last sad offices at the grave of his child, the spade was wrenched from his hand by the sexton." Unquote. In offering this defense of the Bishop of Honolulu, I do so simply with an unselfish wish to do him justice, and save him from hasty and injurious criticism, and not through a mean desire to curry favor with him. The Grand Funeral Pageant as the hour of eleven approached, large bodies of white and native residents, chiefly on horseback, moved toward the palace through the white streets to see the procession form. All business houses were closed, of course, and many a flag, half-mast high, swung lazily in the summer air. The procession began to move at eleven, amid the solemn tolling of bells and the dull booming of minute guns from the heights overlooking the city. A glance of the eye down the procession revealed a striking and picturesque spectacle. Large bodies of women in melancholy black and roofed over with a far-reaching double line of black umbrellas. Troops of men and children in black. Carriages with horses clad from head to foot in sable velvet. And in strong contrast with all this were the bright colors flashing here and there among the pageant. Swarthy Zouaves in crimson raiment, soldiers in blue and white and other lively hues, mounted lancers with red and white pennants fluttering from their weapons, 
nobles and great officers in splendid uniforms, and conspicuous amid its gloomy surroundings the catafalque, clothed on either side with gorgeously tinted kahilis. The slow and measured tread of the marching squadrons, the mournful music of the bands, the chanting of the virtues of the dead and the warrior deeds of her ancestors by a gray and venerable woman here and there, the wild wail that rang out at times from some bereaved one to whom the occasion brought back the spirit of the buried past. These completed the effect. The Kahilis. The Kahilis are symbols of mourning which are sacred to aristocracy. They are immense plumes mounted upon tall poles and are made of feathers of all bright and beautiful colors. Some are a rich purple, some crimson, others brown, blue, white, and black, etc. These are all dyed, but the costly kahilis, formed of the yellow feathers of royalty, taboo to the common herd, were tinted by the hand of nature and come from the tropic bird which, as I have said in previous letters, has but two of them, one under each wing. One or two kahilis also made of red feathers from a bird called by sailors the marlin's pike bird had no artificial coloring about them. These feathers were very long and slender, hence the fowl's name, and each bird's tail is furnished with two and only two of them. The birds of the Sandwich Islands seem uncommonly indigent in the matter of strictly ornamental feathers. A dozen or more of these gaudy kahilis were upheld by pallbearers of high blood and fenced in the stately cattle falc with a vari-colored wall as brilliant as a rainbow. Through the arches of the cattle falc could be seen the coffin, draped with that badge and symbol of royalty, the famous yellow feather war cloak, whose construction occupied the toiling hands of its manufacturers during nine generations of wine kings. Style. We have here in this little land of 50,000 inhabitants the complete machinery in its minutest details of a vast and imposing empire done in miniature. We have all the sounding titles, all the grades and castes, all the pomp and circumstance of a great monarchy. To the curious, the following published program of the procession will not be uninteresting. After reading the long list of dignitaries, etc., and remembering the sparseness of the population here, one is almost inclined to wonder where the material for the portion of the procession devoted to the Hawaiian population generally is to be procured. Here is the program. Undertakers. Royal School. Kawaihao School. Roman Catholic School. Mehmeh School. Honolulu Fire Department. Mechanics Benefit Union, Attending Physicians, Kanohikis, Superintendents of the Crown Lands, Kanohikis of the Private Lands of His Majesty, Kanohikis of the Private Lands of Her Late Royal Highness, Governor of Oahu and Staff, Hulumanu Military Company, The Prince of Hawaii's Own Military Company, Household Troops, The King's Household Servants, servants of her late royal highness, Protestant clergy, the clergy of the Roman Catholic Church, his lordship Louis Maigret, the right reverend bishop of Erethea, vicar apostolate of the Hawaiian Islands, the clergy of the 
Hawaiian Reformed Catholic Church, His Lordship the Right Reverend Bishop of Honolulu. The hearse. Her Majesty Queen Emma's carriage. His Majesty's staff. Carriage of Her Late Royal Highness. Carriage of Her Majesty the Queen Dowager. The King's Chancellor. The Cabinet Ministers. His Excellency the Minister Resident of the United States, James McBride. His Majesty's Commissioner, Monsignor Desnoyers. His Britannic Majesty's Acting Commissioner, W.L. Green. Judges of the Supreme Court. The Privy Councilors. The Members of the Legislative Assembly. The Consular Corp. Circuit Judges. The Clerks of the Government Departments. The Members of the Bar. Collector General, Customs House Officers, and Officers of the Customs. Marshal and Sheriffs of the Different Islands. King's Yeomanry. Foreign Residents. Ahahui Kaahumanu. Hawaiian Population Generally. The Hawaiian Cavalry. And finally, the Hawaiian Police Force. Details. The Ahahui Kaahumanu a benevolent society instituted and presided over by the late princess for the nursing of the sick and burial of the dead, was numerously represented. It is composed solely of native women. They were dressed in black and wore sashes of different colors. His Majesty the King, attended by a guard of nobles and princes, whose uniforms were splendid with bright colors and hoops and braids of gold, rolled with his venerable father in the first carriage in the rear of the catafalque. The Bishop of Honolulu occupied the place of honor in that portion of the procession which preceded the catafalque. The servants of the king and the late princess would have made quite a respectable procession by themselves. They numbered 250, perhaps. Four or five poodle dogs, which had been the property of the deceased, were carried in the arms of individuals among these servants of peculiar and distinguished trustworthiness. It is likely that all the Christianity the Hawaiians could absorb would never be sufficient to wean them from their most idolatrous affection of dogs. And these dogs, as a general thing, are the smallest, meanest, and most spiritless, homely, and contemptible of their species. As the procession passed along the broad and beautiful Nuanu Street, an innocent native would step out occasionally from the ranks and procure a slice of watermelon or pineapple or a lighted pipe from some dusky spectator and returned to his place and enjoy the refreshing luxury as he kept step with the melancholy music. When we had thoroughly examined the pageant, we retired to a back street and galloped ahead to the mausoleum two miles from the center of town and sat down there to wait. This mausoleum is a neat edifice, built of dressed blocks of coral. It has a high, sharp, slated roof, and its form is that of a Greek cross. The remains of the later kings repose in it, but those of ancient times were hidden or buried in compliance with the custom of the Dark Ages. Some say to prevent evil-disposed persons from getting hold of them and thus being enabled to pray a descendant to death. Others say to prevent the natives from making fish hooks out of them, it being held that there were superior fishhook virtues in the bones of a high chief. There are other theories for accounting for this custom, but I have forgotten what they are. It is said that it was usual to send a friend to hide the bones after they had been stripped of the flesh and neatly tied in a bundle, and then waylay him and kill him as he came back. 
whereby it will be observed that to do a favor of this kind was attended with consequences which could not be otherwise than disagreeable to the party assuming the kindly office of undertaker to a debt dignitary. Of course, as you will divine, the man was killed to prevent the possibility of his divulging his precious secret as to the burial place. The mausoleum is large enough to accommodate many dead kings and princes and stands in the middle of a large grass-clad lawn which is enclosed by a stone wall. Arrival of the Procession As the procession filed through the gates, the military deployed handsomely to the right and left and formed an avenue through which the long column of mourners passed to the tomb. The coffin was borne through the door of the mausoleum, followed by the king and his chiefs and the great officers of the kingdom, foreign councils, ambassadors, and distinguished guests. Several of the Kahilis were then fastened to a framework in front of the tomb, there to remain until they decayed and fell to pieces, or forestalling this until another scion of royalty died. At this point in the proceedings, the multitude set up such a dismal, heartbroken wailing as I hope never to hear again. The soldiers fired three volleys of musketry, the wailing being previously silenced to permit the guns being heard. His Highness Prince William, in a showy military uniform, who was formerly betrothed to the princess but was not allowed to marry her, stood guard and paced back and forth within the door. The privileged few who filed the coffin into the mausoleum remained some time, but the king soon came out and stood in the door near one side of it. A stranger could have guessed his rank, although he was so simply and unpretentiously dressed, by the profound deference paid to him by all the persons in his vicinity, by seeing his high officers receive his quiet orders and suggestions with bowed and uncovered heads, and by observing how careful those persons who came out of the mausoleum were to avoid crowding him, although there was enough room in the doorway for a wagon to pass, for that matter. How respectfully they edged out sideways, scraping their backs against the wall and always presenting a front view of their persons to his majesty, and never putting their hats on until they were well out of the royal presence. The King The king is thirty-four years of age, it is said, but looks to be about fifty. He has an observant, inquiring eye, a heavy, massive face, a lighter complexion than is common with his race, tolerably short, stiff hair, a moderate mustache, and imperial large stature, inclining somewhat to corpulence. I suppose he weighs fully 180, maybe a little over. He has fleshy hands, but a small foot for his size, and is about six feet high, is thoughtful and slow of movement has a large head firmly set upon broad shoulders, and is a better man and a better looking one than he is represented to be in the villainous popular photographs of him, for none of them are good. That last remark is surplusage, however, for no photograph ever was good yet of anybody. Hunger and thirst and utter wretchedness overtake the outlaw who invented it. It transforms into desperados the meekest of men, depicts Sinless innocence upon the pictured faces of ruffians gives the wise man the stupid leer of a fool and a fool an expression of more than earthly wisdom. If a man tries to look meekly serious when he sits for his picture, the photo makes him as solemn as an owl. If he smiles, the photograph smirks repulsively. If he tries to look pleasant, the photograph looks silly. 
If he makes the fatal mistake of attempting to seem pensive, the camera will surely write him down as an ass. The sun never looks through the photographic instrument that it does not print a lie. The piece of glass it prints it on is well named a negative, a contradiction, a misrepresentation, a falsehood. I speak feelingly of this matter because by turns the instrument has represented me to be a lunatic, a Solomon, a missionary, a burglar, an abject idiot, and I am none of those. The king was dressed entirely in black, dress coat and silk hat, and looked rather democratic in the midst of the showy uniforms around him. On his breast he wore a large gold star, which was half hidden by the lapel of his coat. He remained at the door half an hour, and occasionally gave an order to the men who were erecting the kahilis before the tomb. He had the good taste to make one of them substitute black crepe for the ordinary hempen rope he was about to tie one of them to the framework with. Finally, he entered his carriage and drove away, and the populace shortly began to drop in his wake. While he was in view, there was but one man who attracted more attention than himself, and that was Minister Harris. This feeble personage had crepe enough around his hat to express the grief of an entire nation, and as usual, he neglected no opportunity of making himself conspicuous and exciting the admiration of the simplest Kanakas. Oh, noble ambition of the modern Richelieu. A contrast. How they did it in ancient times. It is interesting to contrast the funeral ceremonies of the Princess Victoria with those of her great Kamehameha the Conqueror, who died less than 50 years ago, in 1819, the year before the first missionaries came. On the 8th of May, 1819, at the age of 66, he's died as he had lived, in faith of his country. It was his misfortune not to have come in contact with men who could have rightly influenced his religious aspirations. Judged by his advantages and compared with the most eminent of his countrymen, he may be justly styled not only great, but good. To this day, his memory warms the heart and elevates the national feelings of Hawaiians. They are proud of their old warrior king. They love his name. His deeds form their historical age, and an enthusiasm everywhere prevails, shared even by foreigners who knew his worth. That constitutes the firmest pillar of the throne of his son. In lieu of human victims, the custom of that age, a sacrifice of 300 dogs attended his obsequies. No mean holocaust when their national value and estimation in which they were held are considered. The bones of Kamehameha, after being kept for a while, were so carefully concealed that all knowledge of their final resting place is now lost. There was a proverb current among the common people that the bones of a cruel king could not be hid. They made fishhooks and arrows of them, upon which, in using them, they vented their abhorrence of his memory and bitter execrations. From James J. Jarvis, History of the Hawaiian or Sandwich Islands, 2nd edition, 1844. The account of the circumstances of his death, as written by the native historians, is full of minute detail, but there is scarcely a line of it which does not mention or illustrate some bygone custom of the country. In this respect, it is the most comprehensive document I have yet met with. The Ministers Burlingame and von Valkenburg, United States ministers to China and Japan, are ready to sail now. 
but are delayed by the absence of two attaches who went to Hawaii to see the volcano and who were not aware how slow a country this is to get around in. The journey to Hilo, which would be made anywhere else in almost 18-20 hours, requires a week in the little inter-island schooners here. Colonel Kalakaua, the king's chamberlain, has invited the ministerial party to a great luau, a native dinner at Waikiki. General von Valkenburg has achieved a distinguished success as a curiosity finder. Standing on the celebrated Polly a day or two ago and amusing himself by idly punching into the compact lava wall through which the road is cut, he crumbled away a chunk of it, and observing something white sticking to it, he instituted an examination and found a sound, white, unmarred, and unblemished human jaw tooth firmly embedded in the lava. Now the question is, how did it get there? in the side where the road had been cut of a mountain of lava 700 feet above the valley, a mountain which had been there for ages, this being one of the oldest islands in the group. Burlingame was present and saw the general unearth his prize. I have critically examined it, but as I half expected myself, the world knows about as much about how to account for the wonder now as if I had let it alone. In old times, the bones of chiefs were often thrown into the volcanoes to make sure no enemy could get a chance to meddle with them, and Brown has given it his deliberate opinion that that old snag used to belong to one of them fellas. Possibly, but the opinion comes from a source which entitles it to but little weight. However, that tooth is as notable a curiosity as any I have yet seen in the Sandwich Islands. Mark Twain.